And let's pray, and we're diving in. Jesus, we love you today. Um, as, as we unpack what it means to follow you, what it means to be one of your disciples, what it means to, to obey you, to trust you. Lord, o- obedience is the love language of a father because it, it doesn't just blindly follow orders. It, it says, I love you enough and trust you enough and know that you love me, so I'll follow you. I'll do what you ask. I'll do what you say. And so, so Jesus, I pray that, that today we're able to kind of put a new definition or a new understanding of obedience in front of us. Uh, Lord, and understand what that looks like and what that obedience really means when it's connected to you and how you are better than anything else. Um, so Jesus, today I pray you, you open our ears uh, you soften our hearts. Um, Lord, you give us pause and patience uh, when, when things like obedience cause frustration, uh, when even the th- some of the things we're going to talk about today, Lord, even when those things kind of want the, this kind of resistance to build up within us, Jesus, I pray that your spirit would just say, hey, take a breath, just breathe. Um, because, Lord, at the end of the day, there is nothing better and there is no one greater to follow than you. Uh, the life that you lead us to is the life that you intended for us, and there is no greater life than that. Uh, So, Jesus, we pray all this in your name. Everybody said amen. All right. So, according to Dallas Willard, who has written several books, who I'm a huge fan of, uh, Dallas Willard says this, the the greatest issue facing our world today with all of its heartbreaking needs, heartbreak and needs, is, is whether or not those who identify as Christians will actually become disciples of Jesus Christ. And then he kind of unpacks what that means. Steadily learning from him how to live the life of the kingdom of the heavens into every corner of human existence. And it does. It makes you kind of think a little bit. Because if you realize that there, there are 2.4 billion people on the planet who would call themselves Christians. And so you have to imagine, it makes you think, what would happen if 2.4 billion people began to to actually practice the disciplines of Jesus? Like how many problems would be solved? How many issues that we face in our country and around the world, how many of those issues would be solved if the 2.4 billion people on planet Earth that call themselves Christians actually began to practice the disciplines of Jesus? And if you're just catching up with us today, those disciplines, here's what they are. He had five of them. It was prayer, obedience. He was word-centered, right, centered on Scripture. The exaltation, which is a fancy word for worship. Jesus was a worshiper. And Jesus practiced relational intimacy, right? His relationships mattered. They counted. They were important. And if you look at the little acronym, right, it's power, And so Jesus lived a powerful life. It's undeniable. It's undeniable. Even people that don't believe in Jesus that would say that Jesus was just a good teacher or that Jesus was just a good human being, that he was a good man, you cannot deny the fact that Jesus' life had had a powerful influence, right? Jesus' life, his ministry had influence. It was powerful. And so you you have to ask yourself this question, what would our world look like if as believers in Jesus, our aim and our goal in life was to approach every day, every moment, and every challenge as Jesus would have, right? And let's just kind of bring this into your living room. What would your marriage look like? What would your marriage look like if, if, if you decided to approach every challenge that you face in marriage, every moment that you face in marriage? What would your marriage look like if you approached that the way that Jesus would? What would your relationship with your kids, what would parenting look like? Right? What would it look like for, for, for students? What would it look like for you to approach your friendships and relationships as Jesus would have done that, as Jesus would if he, if he were living in your shoes? Like what, what would that be like? What would your relationship with your boss, your coworkers, what would that be like if we approach those things the same way that Jesus did? 
And Matt referenced this just a second ago, Matthew 11. Jesus invites us, he says, take my yoke upon us, which was a common metaphor back in, in his day for discipleship. And what that is in Matthew 11 is Jesus' invitation to us to be and become his disciples. But here's the thing. People that are Jesus' disciples are disciplined, right, taught, trained, and equipped through his disciplines, the things that Jesus practiced, right? And the reason that disciples are disciplined through Jesus' disciplines is the ultimate goal and aim is to live our lives like he does, right? So, so what we can infer from that is this. Jesus looks at us and says, I believe you have what it takes to be like me, and I read a book this week that, that even reminded me of, of like the end of, uh, or a key moment in, in the, the book or the movie, depending on which one you watched or, or read, The Count of Monte Cristo, right? Deep cut, right? But there's a moment, right, where, where Edmund Dantes is in the prison, and, and the old priest looks at him and says, he says, you know, all this stuff, you know, it's, vengeance is God's, you don't have to worry about taking vengeance. And, and Edmund Dantes looks at the, at the priest and says, well, I don't believe in God. And the priest looks back, back at Edmund Dantes and says, That's, that doesn't matter, he believes in you. And that's essentially what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, I believe you have what it takes to be like me. And then like Matt said, he, he says that, that his yoke fits us. And we talked about that a couple weeks ago. We said what Jesus means when he says this is that it's in and through discipleship to him and through the disciplines that, that he leads us into the life that we're intended to live. Right? That's the life that we're meant for. The yoke fits us. The yoke fitting us means that's the life that you're intended to live. And it's key for us, right, to understand this, especially today. we got to understand this. we got to wrap our brains around this. When Jesus invites you and I to be his disciples, which means, again, his trainees and his apprentices, that comes with the expectation on both sides of the deal, which means us and him. There are expectations on both sides of the deal. There are implications on both sides of the deal that, that we will be disciplined. Again, that word in the Bible, the disciplined, means trained and equipped through all of his disciplines. And that's the expectation. That if we're going to be his disciples, then we are going to be trained and equipped, disciplined through all of his disciplines, which means this, not just the ones you like, not just the ones that come easy, not just the ones that fit your schedule, not just the ones that don't ask too much from you, right? When it comes to Jesus' disciplines, the expectation is there's no picking or choosing. It's all of them. And Eugene Peterson, who I love, he, he refers to this life of discipleship as a long obedience in the same direction. He says that when, where we decide, we make the choice to live in response to the abundance of God and not under the dictatorship of our own poor needs, he says, our lives are lived well only when they're lived on the terms of their creation. And the terms of, those of our creation is this, with God loving and us being loved, with God making and us being made, with God revealing and us understanding, with God commanding and us obeying. And that goes all the way back to the first chapter of the Bible. I mean, that was, the, that was essentially, that was the, the, the condition or, or, the, or the environment, the implication, the expectation of our creation. That's how our lives were intended to be lived, right? So that, again, so that our lives reflect the character and identity of who God is to all of creation. So when creation looks at us, what creation sees is God and who he is and what he's like. 
Now, again, I say all this and, and kind of do some of this setup here because it's to brace ourselves. Today's a doozy, right? What we're unpacking today is obedience. We're going to talk about obedience, and I'm just going to be honest with you. It's hard. Today is difficult. It just is. I mean, this is the point where most people, even in Scripture, this is the point where most people kind of bail and walk away. This is the point where us now, 2024, modern culture, when we start talking about obedience, especially obedience to Jesus, right, this is where most of us bail and walk away. Well, why is that? Because nothing runs more contrary to or against the tide of our current culture than obedience. It is so countercultural, right? The, the word, if you just look at the word in, in, in the dictionary, the word obedience is defined like this, submission to a law or the authority of another person. Now, there are so many trigger words in that one sentence when you start to think about it, right? First one, submission. It's like you, you read this definition and you go, be careful what you say next, Brad. Be careful what comes out of your mouth next. And then it's to the authority. And you're like, you better not. You better not. And then to of another person. He's, oh, no, you said it. You said it. You went there. We're out. That's kind of how we look at this. Those words are triggering. They trigger an anger response or, or this thing within us that says resist, push back. I mean, but, but here's the deal. It's not just the definition of obedience that we have issues with. It's also and probably even more so the perception of obedience that we have the biggest problem with. I mean, it's where the term, the modern term sheeple comes from, right? How many of us have heard that? Yeah. Yeah, I get it, right? It's where that word comes from. And if you don't know this, it's not a compliment, right? If someone's like, yeah, you sheeple, you're, like, you're like, aw, does that mean like I'm cuddly and nice and wool? Like, like, no, it's not a compliment. It doesn't mean that at all. Here's what it means. And some of you are like, no, I've, got, I've got some conversations with some people, right? Here's what it means. Sheep are notoriously stupid animals. They are. They're just dumb. And, and they require constant help, right, because they are so weak and so needy And so what sheep are trained to do, essentially, are blindly obey, submit to, and follow their shepherd. That's what it means to be a sheep. Even if that shepherd runs them off a cliff, it's like, we're going to follow. I'll follow him wherever he makes it. It's like, there they go. And so obedience and the way we perceive obedience becomes linked to things like weakness, passivity, and fear. The only reason you would be obedient is because you're weak. The only reason that you would be obedient is because you're soft, you're passive. The only reason that you'd be obedient is because you're afraid. And so culturally, we are told the only person you need to obey is you. I mean, even soft drinks have the tagline, obey your thirst. Right? What does that mean? Does it mean just your your thirst for that soft drink? No. Obey your thirst for sex, for money, for power, for status, for influence. That's what you obey. You obey your thirst, right? Whose thirst? Yours and yours alone. So I'm just telling you, this is your warning. This is your disclaimer. After studying and personally kind of preparing for today, and again, I told you, I'm not going to stand on this stage and preach something to you that I'm not willing to do myself. So I'm just telling you, this is your warning. When it comes to understanding what Jesus really expects of us and what he calls us into, through the discipline of obedience, there's going to be a point today, and I know there will because there was a point for me when you're just going to want to throw something at me, right? 
Like, there's a point for me when I'm reading through, I'm reading through the scripture, I'm studying things, doing some word study, and I, I, wanted, to, I wanted to throw something at my computer. Like, no. Like, you can't expect this. Like, where do you get off? Like, how can you do this? Some of us today, we may leave and go, I'm never coming back. Right? That's just too much. And you might be thinking, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure I can really do this. And just FYI, people have the same thoughts when, when Jesus taught on this. People had the same reaction when Jesus taught on, on this. In fact, not, not, not just referring to the cross, but, but other times in Jesus' life, there were times that, Jesus, that people actually tried to kill him for stuff like this. They weren't successful, but they tried to. They're like, this is too much, Jesus. We're going to kill you. I mean, there, there were points where Jesus preached on this and people went, nope, can't do that, and they left him. They left him. People thought that what he was asking of them was just... It's just too much. So raise your hands if this sounds like fun. That's what I thought. Here we go, all right? Luke chapter 9, if you've got your Bibles or your Bible apps, right, open those up to Luke chapter 9. We're going to kind of live in the book of Luke mostly today. But here's what it says, starting in verse 57. This is kind of a moment, right, where Jesus speaks about obedience and discipleship. It says that as they were going along the road, someone said to him, talking about Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, well, foxes have holes. They have dens and birds of the air. They have nests. But the Son of Man, Jesus, that's how he referred to himself, has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But then that guy who Jesus invited said, well, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. My father just died. My father passed away. I'm going to need to have a funeral. need to bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. And yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but Lord, first let me say farewell to those who are, who are at my home. And Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And it's like, where did nice Jesus go, right? Where did Mr. Rogers, hello neighbor, like where did Ned Flanders Jesus, like where did that Jesus go? Like this is one of two places in Luke where, where Jesus pulls zero punches, when it comes to his expectation of obedience and discipleship, and we're going to read the second one. You're not getting off easy, right? We're going to read both of them. But, but I'll just be honest with you. This, for me, was kind of gut check and, like, buckle up time, and it's the same for us today. Just, just buckle up. Here we go. How many times have you or I sounded like these people that come up to Jesus with these enthusiastic promises? We approach Jesus. We say, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. Whatever you do, I'll follow you. I'm all in, Jesus. And then when Jesus says, okay, but, but I just need to be honest with you where we're going, you know, animals like birds and foxes, they're actually going to have better accommodations than, than we will. And our response is we immediately get disappointed. Like, I didn't know, I didn't know that was going to be the result of obeying Jesus. Like, Jesus, I... I thought we were. I, I thought we were going to actually go someplace nicer. I thought we were going to like a little resort. We can kick back. You can walk on water. Like you can walk across the pool and get me a drink when you need to. Like those. I thought that was what we were going to do, Jesus. I didn't know they were going to a place where like foxes and birds actually have like better accommodations than we will. Jesus, I don't know that I want to go there. How many of us have heard Jesus' invitation to discipleship over and over and over and over again? Follow me. And our response is, yeah, I'd love to do that, but I just need to take care of some personal business first. Jesus, let me get my ducks in a row, 
And then when it works for my schedule, I'd love to obey you and I'd love to follow you. But, but let, me, let me fix some things on my end first. And you see Jesus' response. Let the dead bury their own dead. I mean, Jesus is basically saying, hey, I know that your father passed away, right? And, and, and that's sad, but, but here's the deal. There's nothing you can do about that now. There are actually spiritually dead and dying people that you can do something about. So, so go right now and, ben, and begin proclaiming the, the kingdom of God. Or maybe it's like the last one. It's like, Jesus, I'll follow you, but listen, I told my wife that I'd be home by 8.30. Right? So can we make sure we wrap this up by then? I don't want to get in the doghouse, right? I told her I'd be home by 8.30, right? Got to put the kids to bed. So, so I'd love to follow you, but I just need to leave probably like around 8 or so. You good with that? And you see Jesus' response. Nobody puts his hand to the plow. No one begins to do kingdom work and then looks back. The people that do that, Jesus says, are not fit for the kingdom of God. Which is basically Jesus saying this. You cannot live in two worlds. You can't live in two worlds. You can't begin to serve him and want to serve him and be his disciple, but then also kind of run things yourself. You can't do that. And here's our takeaway from this, right? Obedience and discipleship, when it comes to Jesus' expectations, do not move at the speed of convenience. Obedience and discipleship are not on your schedule. They do not function based on your life. And you're kind of starting to tap out, at least I was at this point. It's like you're looking at Jesus going, I'm out, I'm out, I'm out, tap out, tap out, right? And he's not done. <laughs> It says this in Luke 14, flip over a couple of pages, starting in verse 25. It says, now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, if anybody comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brother and sister, yes, hate even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Like That's harsh. And as we read this, again, we have to read it through the lens of the people that would have been hearing it back in this day because sometimes the way they would have heard it and the way they would have understood it differs from the way we read it, hear it, and understand it. Just so you know this, hate in their culture, hate and love in a lot of ways, it was a choice word. Right? Hate is a choice word. Hate is not an emotional and feeling word. Like we use love and hate. It's all emotions. It's all feeling. It's how we feel about somebody else or how they, they feel about us. But hate for Jesus, was not an emotion or feeling word. It was a choice word. And what he's saying here is, is this. If anybody comes to me and is not willing to choose me over their father, their mother, their wife, their kids, their siblings, and your, even your own life, then you can't be my disciple. If you're not willing to choose me over those things, then you can't be my disciple. And then Jesus takes it one step further. Whoever does not bear his own cross cannot come after me, right? Cannot and come after me, cannot be my disciple. Jesus goes to extremes. And again, we read this of going like we get it, the cross, the crucifixion, all that kind of stuff. People back in this day, like this, this would have been extremely offensive. Because the Romans, they humiliated people through crucifixion. It wasn't just a means of killing you, it was a means of humiliating you and then killing you. This was the most extreme, worst, most humiliating death imaginable. And that's how people would have heard this. You want us to do what? You know what that means, right, Jesus? Yeah. And Jesus says, true discipleship is going to cost you your whole life. 
It's going to cost you your reputation. It's going to cost you your status. And then Jesus gives two, two examples. If you read the rest of the way through this chapter, Jesus gives two examples of basically count the cost. Before you step into discipleship, before you, you come to me with all these promises, Jesus, I will follow you wherever you go. I'm all in. Jesus says, count the cost. Make sure you're ready. And then he says this. He closes out this section by saying, salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, then how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no use for the soil or the, for the manure pile. It's thrown away. And then Jesus says, he who has ears, let him hear. Jesus, let me read that. Jesus is like, you get it? Like, that's basically what Jesus is saying. Got me? So Jesus, when, in these two passages, he, he wraps all this up by essentially saying, when it comes to the discipline of obedience in discipleship, there's no middle ground. It is all or nothing. So Jesus says, count the cost now. If you're not willing to go all in, then don't go in at all. I mean, Jesus even says anything other than, than all in or all out is like salt that isn't salty. It's, it's no use. I mean, you can't even use unsalty salt to make fertilizer. Like, you can't even use unsalty salt, Jesus says, to mix into manure. You cannot use unsalty salt in poop. Just be real. It's like that's, that's how useless it is. And you read this and go, like, where does Jesus get off talking to me like that? Like, whoa, man. Like, how can Jesus expect that much of us? And here's the deal. He's not asking you or I to do something that he hasn't already been willing to do himself and that he hasn't already done himself. He's not asking us to do something that he hasn't already done. Jesus isn't pointing his finger at us going, hey, I need you guys to do this while I do something else. Check this out, John chapter 5, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son himself can do nothing of his own accord. Basically, the, the Son doesn't do whatever he wants. The Son of God doesn't do whatever he wants, but here's what he does. He does only what he sees the Father doing. Which means this, I obey. Jesus says, I obey and do what my Father wants done. Jesus is saying in this that my only goal is to be involved in what God is doing, which is the rescue and restoration of humanity. And Jesus says, the only way I stay involved in what God is doing is through obeying him, through obedience. And Jesus says, for whatever the Father does, the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son, and he shows him all that he himself is doing. And again, that's what obedience is rooted in. Obedience is not just blindly following orders. Obedience is rooted in the love that the Son has for the Father and the love that the Father has for the Son. Obedience for us is rooted in the love that the Father has for you and your love for the Father. God, I love you and trust you enough because I know you love me to do whatever you ask me to do. Jesus, I know that you love me so much you're willing to give your life for me. So because of that, I love you and trust you enough to do what you ask. In Philippians 2, Paul says this, have, have this mind among yourselves. Basically, this is how you think. 
This is the filter. This is the mindset. This is the posture. This is the attitude that you have, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The most humiliating, painful, excruciating way to die. We talked a little bit about this last week. We talked about Jesus in, in John 17. It's that, that high priestly prayer where Jesus prays to God just minutes before he's going to be arrested and betrayed and then sentenced to death and executed. And in that moment, the conversation with Jesus, between Jesus and God is, hey, if there's another way to do this that doesn't require me being humiliated and nailed to a cross until I die, let's do that. But God, if there's not another way to do this, if there's not another way to restore humanity, to restore our relationship with the people we created and that we love, if there's not another way, I'm in. Your will be done. See, in Philippians, Paul, he just unpacks this further. He unpacks the fact that that Jesus modeled the discipline of obedience to the point of dying on a cross. Jesus, he backed up what we talked about last week in prayer when he said, not my will, but yours be done, right? Your kingdom come, your will be done, not mine. Jesus practiced obedience to God and God's mission to restore and renovate and reconcile us to himself no matter what the cost. It's going to cost you your life. Okay, I'm in. And Paul says you and I, we're supposed to have the same mindset. We're supposed to have that kind of a mindset when it comes to obedience. Yes, you are. We are. I am. See, obedience in in the ways of Jesus requires you and I to empty ourselves of our own dreams, plans, agendas, and goals and motives to take on the posture of a servant. Again, something Jesus did. Jesus isn't asking us to do something that he has not already done. In the upper room with his disciples, Jesus, he put a towel around his waist and washed their feet. That was a role, that was a job kind of set aside for the lowest ranked servant in the house. The lowest ranked servant, the one who matters the least. Jesus says, I'll do that. And then he looks at his disciples and us and says, you do the same. We have to let go of all this stuff. Why? So we can take on the posture of a servant who's dedicated to God's dreams, God's plans, God's agendas, God's goals, God's motives, which are better than ours. Can I just tell you, like, what God wants for your life is so much better than anything you could ever come up with yourself. Right? And that doesn't mean prosperity. I'm not talking about like a full, like full bank accounts and stuff and houses and cars and boats and promotions and, and titles. I'm, not t- I'm saying God's dream for you is a kingdom dream. God's dream for us is rooted in his kingdom. Our dreams for ourselves are rooted in what we see on this side of heaven. Wouldn't the fact that God's dreams are rooted in eternity, that just makes them better from the start. That's what he wants for us. And this is where we start to kind of push back from the table, right? Despite all of that, we we start to, here's what we do. We start to try to find a way to get the benefits of discipleship under Jesus without all the mess and fuss of commitment to things like obedience. 
I mean, Jesus, like the idea of being your disciple, like that sounds awesome. But obedience, if I can just be honest, Jesus, give you a little bit of feedback. Uh, obedience is kind of a buzzkill. I want all the other stuff. I just don't know how I feel about this. So here's kind of how I want to start to land the plane, right? Kind of come out of the clouds, right? I want to I talk about why discipleship to, obedience, discipleship to Jesus without obedience doesn't work. And here's a really simple answer, because it's not a deal that's on the table. We talk a lot here at Adventure about the fact that Jesus puts two deals on the table. You can run your own life. You can try to do that, or you can trust him with yours. You can trust Jesus with your life. There, there's not a third deal that says, Jesus, I just need you to take care of my eternity. I'll run the rest. That deal doesn't exist. It's not a deal that Jesus puts on the table. It's not a part of the deal. This past week, I picked up a new book. It's called Practicing the Way. It's by a guy named John Mark Comer. It's excellent. I would, I would recommend it to everyone, right? And, and in that book, what he outlines is, is kind of the expectation and goals of both the disciple and the disciple maker. So if I'm a disciple, what's the goal? Like, what, what, am I, what are we discipling towards? If, if I'm looking at Jesus, who's my disciple maker, then, then what are his goals? What are his expectations? And all of this is kind of rooted, again, back in the culture that would have existed in Jesus' day. So when Comer outlines all of this, he's outlining it in a way that the people back in Jesus' day would have read it and understood it. And it's the same for us. And this is what it comes down to, practicing the all-in, the, practicing the discipline of all-in obedience as Jesus outlined it is implied, expected, and understood by both parties. All in. That's the implication. That's expected. It goes without saying. Right? Both, it would have been understood by both parties. The disciple and the disciple maker is a critical piece, a critical part of discipleship as a whole. And here's the, the, here's the major problem with that. Here's the, here's the big elephant in the room. It's this, today, for, for many, a Christian is someone who just mentally ascribes to kind of the bare bones of Christianity, which, by the way, is a word that's never used in the Bible. Christianity, that word, is never used in Scripture. We're just, a Christian is someone who just mentally ascribes to kind of the bare bones of the deal, and, and a Christian is someone who may or may not attend church occasionally, but when it comes to our definition of what it means to be a Christian, the concept of, of obeying and following Jesus is not part of the equation. It's just not in there. We've, what we've done is we've crafted a modern-day gospel that creates salvation by minimum entrance requirements. Right? And it's like we were talking to somebody earlier, just a minute ago about you know, going to Disney. It's like you go to Disney before all the rides, it's like you have to be this tall. Like that's the minimum. And that's kind of what we do. Like, that's kind of how we've created a gospel that says, listen, I want salvation. I want to get into heaven, but I just want to be this tall, right, in order to be able to do it. Like, I don't, I don't want to be, I don't want to, just this. What's the low bar? Like, what's the minimum requirement? But see, the thing is, Jesus has a different understanding of salvation. And our gospel this kind of modern day, like, I only want to be 40 inches, right? Our modern day gospel leaves out an entire section that, according to Jesus, begins in our lives now. 
that salvation is not just something that happens when you die, but Jesus says there's this entire, like salvation begins to work on your life now on this side of heaven. And we've said this here before. It's important for us to know this. For Jesus, salvation is less about you and I getting into heaven when we die and more about him getting heaven into us now. And according to Jesus, the pathway to that kind of life comes through obedience. Comer says this in his book, contrary to what many assume, Jesus did not invite people to convert to Christianity. Jesus didn't ever call people Christians, which back in their day was a derogatory term. It was meant to make fun of Christians. And it's funny, the interesting thing is, Everybody else, right, used this word to make fun of Christians, like, oh, you're a little Christ. Like, you're like that little guy. You're, you're like a little version of the guy we nailed to a cross. And the Christians just like, it's like, well, instead of them laughing at us, let's, let's laugh with them, right? And they just adopted it, right? It's like, but it was a derogatory term. And it's only used three times in the New Testament. Jesus never called people a Christian. He never did that. And, and here's the thing. Jesus, what he invited people to was discipleship. That's a word used 269 times. In the New Testament, 261 of those are by Jesus. And that discipleship is under him. And the goal of that discipleship is for us to to be led into a new way of living. Jesus never asked the question, who wants to be a Christian? He said, whoever wants to be my disciple. And here's what I love, love about this. The word whoever literally means whoever. And that was so different, so counter to what people back in Jesus' day, kind of the way they would have understood this. Like, people that were, that were spiritual leaders and teachers, rabbis, like, they only chose the best of the best, and they didn't want to get rejected, right? So they made sure, they kind of sandbagged a little bit so they could get the cream of the crop. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple, come as you are, right? And become all that God desires you to be. You don't have to clean yourself up, you don't have to fix your life. You don't have to deal with your personal mess. Whoever literally means whoever. Anyone can be a disciple of Jesus. And so to kind of wrap things up, let me just get visual for a second, okay? Like, if you read through Jesus' Gospels, if you read through the biographies of Jesus, kind of tell Jesus' story, right? People are referred to in one of two ways, right? Followers of Jesus, right? Those would be kind of one group of people, followers of Jesus, And when you see the followers of Jesus, like in Scripture, as you read through your Bible, as you read through the biographies of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when you see that word followers of Jesus, here's what you need to understand. Those were people who were in full-blown discipleship to Jesus. Like followers of Jesus, these people are the people who have reorganized and reshaped their lives entirely around Jesus, right? So kind of hang on to that. This group of people over here, These are the followers of Jesus. The disciples of Jesus reorganized their whole lives around Jesus. That's one group. The other group, the way that the scripture refers to, the other group is just the crowds. And you saw that. Like you saw that in some of the scripture we read earlier. So the crowds are essentially anybody else. Right? So on this side, you've got everybody. It's it's everybody. It's, It's everybody else. And on this side over here, you have the followers, people who have reorganized and reshaped their lives around Jesus. Here's what I want want you to see. There's no middle group. There's no, when it comes to Jesus and kind of where we stand in our relationship and discipleship to him, there's no third category in Scripture. There isn't a third category. There are followers. There's the crowd. That's it. Followers, full-blown discipleship to Jesus. 
There's no third category in the middle called Christians that consists of people who generally agree with what most of what Jesus says, but don't actually follow him. We agree with him, but we don't actually follow him. I, I like what he has to say, but, but I'm not going to make any kind of a serious attempt to obey his teaching. But then the interesting thing is, is, is this third category also kind of expects to get into heaven when we die. I like him. Says a lot of really good stuff. Really need him to make sure that my eternity is set. But, but I, don't, I don't know that I'm into this, right? I don't know that I'm here, but I, I also don't want to be here. This category does not exist. This category of, I like Jesus, but I just don't want to follow him. I like Jesus, but I only want to obey some things. But you know what? I, despite that, despite the fact that I like Jesus and I only want to obey some things, I still expect him to save me and get me into heaven. Would you accept that? Would, that be, would you be cool with that? Hey, I like you. I like you a lot. Love what you stand for. Love, love, but yeah, I don't really want to follow you. But here's the deal. I want you to take care of me for the rest of my life. Would you, would you be okay with that? See, what's happened is we've created a culture within the church where you can be a Christian and not be a disciple of Jesus. We think and we figure, I can be saved, but not obey. And what we've done is we've built an incomplete gospel that has allowed us to be the consumers of Jesus' death, the benefits of Jesus' death, while missing out entirely on discipleship and living in the power of following Jesus with our lives. Jesus says, you can do what I do. You can live like I live. Practicing true obedience to Jesus has become this kind of optional track in the church. It's optional. It's, it's, a, it's an optional track, and, and really it's meant for, for, for those people that have the time to kind of take on a new spiritual hobby. Like discipleship isn't for me. I'm too busy. Like those people, maybe they're empty nesters. Maybe they don't have, you know, like whatever, like they don't have a job. Whatever it is, like they're retired. Like that's who can be disciples. They've got time to do that. They have the time to take on a new spiritual hobby. Or people who are disciples, those are the spiritually elite. But that's not me. I ain't got time for that. Here's what I need. I just need somebody to get me out of hell and into heaven when I die. Here's what Comer says. He says, Jesus isn't looking for converts to Christianity. He's looking for disciples in the kingdom of God. So we have to ask ourselves, if you shared the gospel with someone your neighbor, your friend, your coworker, a family member, would someone that heard your gospel, would they naturally conclude that true and full obedience in discipleship to Jesus is the only fitting response? Or would they conclude that it's something less than that? And here's what I would argue. If it's less than that, it's not the gospel. And then Comer asks the million-dollar soul-crushing question. This is what I wanted to throw my Diet Dr. Pepper at my laptop. Based on your gospel, are you a follower and disciple of Jesus? Or are you just another face in the crowd? Because those are your options. Are you a follower and disciple of Jesus? Or just another face in the crowd? I mean, Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, he says, there are going to be people who say to him, Jesus, I called you Lord. And I did all kinds of things in your name. And in verse 23, he says this, and I will declare to them, I never knew you. You claim you know me. I don't know you. 
Depart from me, he says, you workers of lawlessness. And as we end, let me kind of make this really, really simple. The question is, how do we become followers and disciples of Jesus? Through practicing, which does not mean perfecting, the discipline of obedience. Hear this, right? Disciplines, disciplines, transformation does not demand perfection. It demands practice, right? Disciplines are not about trying harder. It's about training. So obedience does not have to be perfect, but, man, it's, we're making progress, we're trusting him more and more and more. How do I be a disciple? Through practicing, not perfecting the discipline of obedience. Well, how do we practice obedience? By taking on the mindset of a servant, which means this, becoming a servant, not just someone who does service projects. One is transformation. The other is behavior modification. We talked about that the first week, right? So when it comes to obedience, we don't ask ourselves, well, what do I need to do to serve somebody? It's no, who do I need to become so that I'm a servant? That's what disciplines ask. How do we become a servant? We empty ourselves of our pride, our status, our reputation, our image, all to create more room for the all-in life that Jesus desires for us and for those around us. And here's what this looks like. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus goes for a walk around the Sea of Galilee. And it says this, that while he was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he, Jesus, saw two brothers, guys that he had known for about a year, Simon, who we know as Peter, and Andrew, his brother, and they were casting a net into the sea. Why? Because they were fishermen. And he yells out to them, follow me, which means be my disciple. That's what that means. That follow me does not, hey, be my fan. Be a big supporter of JC, right? That's not what that means. Follow me means be my disciple, and I will make you fishers of men. I will be your disciple maker. You will do what I do. And it says this, immediately. They didn't think about it. Didn't have to go take care of personal stuff. Didn't have to clean themselves up. Didn't need to, to, to check their schedules. Immediately, they left their nets, which is everything they depended on to live. Their nets were how they made a living. Their nets were, were, were how they, they, they fed their families. They left everything they depended on to live, and they followed Jesus. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, in the boat with their dad. Right? You got two brothers in the boat with their father mending their nets, and he called out to them, follow me. Can you imagine this? Like two teenage kids, right, in, in, the, in the boat with their father, learning how to take over the family business. That's their path, right? They're, they're mending the nets. They're watching their father do it. Their path is you're going to take over the family fishing business one day. And, and Jesus says, follow me. And these two dudes just jumped in the water. And they left their dad in the boat. I'm sure he's going, wait. They didn't wait. The Bible tells us immediately they left the boat and their father and followed Jesus. Jesus sets a high bar of entry into a relationship with him. And here's what it requires. It requires you and I to reorder our whole lives around following Jesus as our undisputed top priority over our job, over our money, over our reputation. And it begins, church, with letting go of your nets. So that's the challenge today. 
what's it going to take? What are you hanging on to? What are you trying to drag into discipleship with Jesus so that it's discipleship and? That Jesus is going, listen, I got you. I got you. Just a few chapters after this, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, listen, I know that you're worried about what you're going to eat, where you're going to live, and the clothes you're going to wear. Listen, don't worry about that. Just seek my kingdom, and I'll take care of the rest. Can we do that? That's what discipleship is. That's what it means to be a disciple, is someone who follows, someone who reorganizes and reshapes our lives around Jesus. We practice obedience. We don't perfect obedience never will on this side of heaven. And that's where Jesus' patience and grace comes in, right? That's where we, that's why we worship Jesus, because of his patience and grace. Because you fall down seven times, Jesus says, get up the eighth. Let's go. Let's keep going. Let's keep practicing. Trust me with a little bit more of your life. Trust me with a little bit more of your life. Trust me a little bit more. Serve. Become a servant. Not just someone who does service projects. Don't sign up for a summer mission trip and go, check mark, done. No, become a servant. So as we worship now, as we kind of close down, the work is really just beginning. Because this week, the challenge is to figure out what are your nets? What are you hanging on to right now that you're saying, I depend on this to live. If I don't have this, I can't live. And Jesus is going, I got you. What's it going to take for you to trust him? So I'm going to pray for us. We're going to worship. If today you want to say yes to Jesus, maybe you've never said yes to Jesus. Maybe you've never begun to follow Jesus in this. If you want to say yes to Jesus, I'd love to meet you down front. If today you need prayer, I'd love to pray for you. If you want to spend some time at the foot of the cross and pray, you can do that. If today you want to join our church, you want to become a part of this group, this family of people who are practicing and training to be more like Jesus. Jesus says, whoever wants to be my disciple, can be my disciple. We have the same stance. Whoever wants to come to Jesus, whoever wants to be his disciple, let's rock and roll. So I'm going to pray for us and we're going to worship. But in this time, test your gospel. Is the only natural conclusion of the gospel in your mind anything other than complete and total trust and obedience to Jesus? If it is, it's not the gospel. Those nets, what is it going to take to let go of your net? What is the thing right now you're going, if I don't have this, I don't know that I'll make it. Can you trust Jesus with that? Let's pray. Jesus, we love you. This morning, Father, we say thank you that, that you say anyone and everyone that wants to be a disciple can be a disciple, Lord. It doesn't matter what's going on in our lives, what our past looks like. Lord, you make it possible now. But you, don't, you also tell us, count the cost. Make an informed decision. Make an educated decision. Don't just step into this thinking it's going to be the easiest thing in your life. Count the cost, what I expect, all in, nothing less. But Jesus, here's the thing, Father. We, when we give you all of us, you give us all of you. And there is nothing greater than that. So Jesus, I pray as we worship in this time, Lord, that you would correct our gospel. Lord, that you would heal our hearts. Lord, that your spirit would give us the courage, what it means and what it takes to, true, to truly follow you. Jesus, we love you. We pray all this in your name. We worship you now. Amen.